You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload the cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Father, your word is living life. It is good food for famished ones. Show us your glory. Show us your son, Jesus. Help us so that our hearts leaving this place might exalt him. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make. Until last year, on a weekly basis, my wife, Amy, and I were involved in repeated torture of our two older sons. The mode of this torture was starvation. Our eldest boys would suffer repeatedly on Sundays between the end of services and the time of our departure. It was only until last year when Cade could, on his own, because he had fulfilled all the requirements of the Motor Vehicle Bureau of the great state of Minnesota, could he then drive a car and leave this place, thus saving him and his brother Blake 
from our enduring torture. I confess this knowing that many of you in this very room who have children of your own have been involved in the same thing. Amy and I had been caught up in a phenomenon we had succumbed to since we uh, began living here many years ago called the Minnesota Goodbye. To our children, we are sorry, but we told you to eat your breakfast. To our friends and family here, though we ourselves are starving, our affections for you satiate our souls. I will say my boys were always polite, waiting for a break in our conversations to ask, what are we going to eat? When are we leaving? Obviously, I jest in the effort to wipe last night's slumber from your mind. But the situation, the circumstance is true. Our boys would often have to wait for us to finish talking. That's the Minnesota goodbye. But I, I want to tell you something. It doesn't just happen here in Minnesota. In fact, my boys would tell you it's happened repeatedly. When we were in Tennessee, when I've been in West Africa, visiting believers there, when I've been in Southeast Asia, saying farewell is hard. Christians everywhere, it seems, have succumbed to the Minnesota goodbye. And pondering this phenomenon, I, I, I found a connection. It's because of our fellowship. It's because of the uniqueness of our relationship. It's because of our love for one another. It's hard to say goodbye. It's a Christian connection. It's a Christian goodbye. Our friendship and fellowship as Christians creates long farewells, and frankly, we can see this in the scriptures, scriptures themselves, it, including right here in Acts. In our passage today, at the very beginning, we see, find Paul and his team at Miletus with the elders from Ephesus. It was an emotional scene of a, of a long farewell and an intimate time of, of prayer. And as we look at Acts 21, this first section we'll see some themes. We'll see this theme of Christian relationship. We'll see this theme, these themes that show up in Christian life, the themes of fellowship, the themes of being faithful in circumstances, and the value of Christ are some of the themes. And these remind us, these remind us that, well, let me see if I can get my fingers to work, that the love of Jesus transforms our experience. The experience of relationships, and even our very lives and circumstances are transformed for Christ and his glory. Our union with Christ transforms us, how we experience life. It is a love for him and his love for us that is resolute and unbound. And that's the idea that I want to be underneath our study today. Our text is a travelogue from Luke. It details the journey from Jerusalem, verses 1 through 16, there are specific points of location. We'll see them journeying from Miletus to Tyre and then Tyre to Caesarea and then Caesarea finally to Jerusalem. But it is more than a detailed account of the journey. It provides us with a picture of the gospel at work among people who've been transformed and seek to live life for the goal of the glory of God. It's an intimate history. Our history is an intimate history. And as we read these travelogues and we read the description of what happened in the early church, we have to remember these are people experiencing life together. They're experiencing the gospel changing and transforming their hearts. They're people like you and me who have been sent on mission. 
for the glory of God. So let's first look at the journey to Tyre that Paul and the missionary band took. And we'll see in this the beauty of gospel fellowship. Verse 1 finds Paul and his team at Miletus having said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. The the verb in Greek there in verse 1, it says when we had parted, the verb in Greek that is translated parted, in its full sense can convey tearing. So is the scene in Miletus. When they are bidding farewell, farewell to the Ephesians, it involves tearing themselves away. When our lives are wrapped up in gospel relationships with others, it's, it's hard to say goodbye. It's like tearing ourselves apart from one another. We become linked together by bond of friendship, a friendship whose deep waters unite us by the blood of Jesus. So it's like tearing ourselves away and saying goodbye. This is an intimate scene. We saw in chapter 20 that Jason preached last week. At the end of chapter 20, the, the Ephesian elders were sorrowful most of all, in verse 38, of all because of the word he had spoken, what, that they would not see his face again. Yet Paul knew the relationships don't supersede the ministry that God has appointed for a person. Paul, guided by the Spirit, is, is set for Jerusalem. Two previous passages in Acts will reveal this to us, Acts 19.21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then Acts chapter 20, verse 16, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The journey, the mission, was to Jerusalem. That's where he was headed. He was there. He wanted to be there at the day of Pentecost. And although Luke doesn't highlight all the details for us, we also know from elsewhere in the New Testament that this missionary band was carrying with them a gift. The Gentile churches had collected a gift for the poor in Jerusalem, and they were sending it by means of this missionary band. We, we read that in Romans 15, verses 25 through 27, 1 Corinthians 16, and also Paul will refer to it later in Acts 24, 17. Paul is motivated by the Spirit. He was resolved to go to Jerusalem to be there as an encouragement at Pentecost and to deliver the gift collected by these Gentile churches. And upon saying a tearful goodbye to the Ephesians, they board a ship and begin to make their way. And Jason asked me if I was going to put maps on the screen. I really thought about it. But there's maps in the back, and maybe you can look at it later. At first, they take this small little coasting vessel and a a coasting vessel is a little ship that just hugs the coast, and so they made these little day stops down the coast. And uh, finally, when they got to Patera, uh, which is on the southwest coast of modern-day Turkey, they found a, a larger cargo vessel that would be able to make the 400-mile journey across the open sea of the Mediterranean so that they could reach the eastern shore of the Med um, and land at Tyre. Verse 4, we read um, this wonderful little reminder having sought out the disciples. There were disciples there. There were disciples in, in Tyre. Disciples that Paul didn't know personally, but he would soon will. And this is a wonderful reminder. The gospel has been on the move. We've seen it through the book of Acts. The gospel is moving. God has used transformed people, their experiences and their circumstances, and he has sent them and moved them into different places. There were Christians in Tyre. 
There was a church there. And it's all because God, our good and sovereign God, by his own hand, had been moving people as they responded to circumstances. Acts 11, we read long ago, Acts eleven nineteen. it says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The Christians in Tyre heard the gospel because God sent people there. God sent people to Phoenicia and to the port city of Tyre. They were scattered in response to Stephen's persecution. And, and when, even when hardships and sufferings befall us, we must remember that God in his sovereign grace will often use the things that hurt us and move us towards others who need to hear the gospel. So that upon hearing and believing, they too could be transformed like we. Amen? The Christians entire welcomed Paul and his companions. Paul had several companions. We read at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, they're, they're companions from all these different Gentile churches, from Thessalonica and Berea and Derbe and Lystra and uh, other parts of Asia. And they were sent with him. So there's seven men plus Paul and Luke who, who go. And so they stayed in Tyre for seven days. The people in Tyre welcomed them in as brothers and, and, and sisters will welcome traveling missionaries. And they welcomed them in and they stayed seven days. You do life with people for seven days. It's amazing what happens. You know, our world, we're distracted. We go to work and we have these little hours of the day that just kind of is when we do life. But we're doing life at work too. But then when you go somewhere and you're living life with people on a daily basis, other Christians, other believers focus on the glory of God. It's amazing what happens to your soul. It's amazing. During Paul's time with the Christians there, the believers began to plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. In verse 4 it says, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go. Not to go to Jerusalem. The people there reinforced what Paul had already known. He's heard this message before. We saw this last week in his, his address to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20, verse 22. It says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what he said to them. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says he's constrained by the Spirit. He must, he, he, in order to live, he must go. And that God, the Holy Spirit, has revealed what awaits him. Despite knowing these things, despite this, despite this reality, he set his face to Jerusalem. Paul is resolute in his journey. And what, what do we make of the Christians entire? What do we make of this? What do we make of their pleas? They love Paul. You see, they love Paul. They love Paul, and because of their fellowship and faith, they have no desire for him to suffer. The word says, through the Spirit, they're telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we don't have to worry about a conflict in the messages, that one message was given to Paul and one message was given to them. The way the Spirit is guiding Paul and others as he journeys to Jerusalem is speaking very truthfully about what is going to happen to Paul. His journey to Jerusalem 
will involve suffering. God's not hiding this. He's being very plain. Nor is God hiding it from others, those others that are with him. He doesn't keep it a mystery. And however, what we can know is that oftentimes our interpretations of the reality that God's revealing to us can be wrong. Simply put, the Holy Spirit has revealed to the Christian community entire that going to Jerusalem would, just as Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, bring affliction. Their interpretation of this reality is, well, then Paul should avoid it. They love Paul, and knowing he faces suffering and the desire for him not to experience suffering is an expression of real human experience and real human emotion, and you and I would do the same, would we not? But, but, their interpretation as it is, well, this means he shouldn't go. Paul is following the Lord. He's guided by the Spirit. He's chasing the prize. He's fulfilling the ministry that God has appointed to him. And he's going. What we've seen so far is the Holy Spirit's work throughout all Scripture. He is always specific in guiding us. We remember his speech to the Ephesians. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, in Acts 20, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflections await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Though those entire told him not to go, Paul knew they must travel ahead. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is another wonderful scene. When our days there had ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Here again, an amazingly intense scene, an intimate picture of Christian fellowship. Reminding us of the, the transforming power of the gospel in our relationships. Other people become people engaged with us by faith. Other people become friends and family. Other people who are transformed by Jesus and we transform with them. We become this genuine family, this real unique fellowship. The Apostle John, as he's writing to a group of believers, he's talking about the, the historical reality of the manifestation of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. And he says to them, he says, the, th- the message that we're proclaiming to you, verse 1, chapter 3, I mean, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God, the God of the universe. Because he has come and because of our faith in him, we are then united to other believers and then we're united to this God who spoke the universe into existence. It is something that the world knows nothing about, this fellowship. There's a bond there. Have you ever ran into another believer at the airport? Somehow Christ comes up, just in, just in casual conversation, hopefully, and, and you start to talk, and you, there's this relationship. Or you're on the soccer field, and you're talking to other parents, and then you run into these other believers, and you share how God has worked in your life, and you're at the grocery store. Check. There's this thing that happens. Intimate friends, all of a sudden. And you know what's funny? When outsiders 
See this? It draws them. When they see that fellowship and friendship, strangers just met, but it's like they've known each other all their lives. What's this all about? Well, it's testifying to what God has said. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They see it. They see it, and it's supernatural, and they can't explain it. And often I find that that kind of fragrance invites people. The whole congregation entire, it says, and they all, you know, all in the Bible means what? It means all. They all, every family, wives and children, all of them, the whole congregation came to the beach. They prayed with Paul and the others, and they said goodbye together. The welcome, hospitality, and love of Christian fellowship is transformative, is it not? From there they depart. The next section of their journey, this is our second scene we'll see, the journey from to Caesarea and then to Jerusalem. And what we'll see is we'll see this idea of the value of Christ above all else. Verse 7, Paul and his companions begin their voyage to Tyre, or from Tyre. They land in Ptolemaeus. They found the believers there. They found other believers there. And of course, the gospels worked and spread disciples. They stayed with them for a day. And then verse 8, they arrive at Caesarea, and they, they stay with Philip the evangelist. Now, Philip was one of the original deacons selected in chapter 6. And actually, in March of last year, I, I preached the message from chapter 8 where Philip um, evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch becomes converted, a converted believer. And there in Acts 39, 8-39, we see that after the eunuch's baptism, Philip was transported by God's Spirit. The Bible says this, And when they had come about, the water of the Spirit carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip the evangelist had passed through the coastal towns north, going north up the coast, and finally the Lord planted Philip in Caesarea to be a gospel witness and to raise a family. Twenty years later, after having four daughters who were also believers and had the gift of prophecy, we see him. And, and a quick point of emphasis here. We are all sent. We are all sent people, sent to make disciples, we're all called to make disciples. And some of us are sent and planted in specific settings to be witnesses to specific communities or neighborhoods, whether it be Maple Grove or Plymouth or Chanhassen or Carver. And we're planted there to raise families and be a gospel witness as we raise our children there. And at various times, perhaps being a spiritual and financial support for those disciple makers who do go abroad, sent into the world. Or perhaps those who come and they, they're passing through, we, in our hospitality, we welcome them in, just like the families we read, read previously in Tyre, who housed Paul and the missionaries for seven days. We are all called to go and make disciples. The shape of that often looks different, okay? but you're all called to go. My prayer is that some of us who are planted to be witnesses here are those who God uses to be a strong support for the people that are on the move, 
that those planted here involved in family rearing and discipleship, that we are training our children to love God and know the surpassing worth of Jesus. Children, look at me. You need to know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He is far more valuable than anything else in this world. Do you understand? Far more valuable, kids. And he loves you so much. He loves you so much. My prayer is that we will be a good, strong support for anyone who's sent, anyone that stays, that we might receive them with hospitality and we might minister to them. We, we see in history, even Philip, the evangelist, they stayed in Caesarea with um, his daughters and then he moved to Heropolis in a Christian migration out of Palestine. We see that later. In fact, in the second century, uh, Philip and two, at least two of his daughters' um, tombs were pointed out in Heropolis. Heropolis is near Colossae. Returning to our text, at Philip's home, we have another emotional scene here. Look at verse 10. Let's read this again. It says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Agabus is a, is a prophet we've seen before. We saw him at the end of chapter 11. And here in, in chapter 21, we find Agabus again prophesying. And here he repeats the message Paul has already heard. And, and, and there's a formality about this event. He takes Paul's belt, which would have been a long cloth. He wrapped around his body several times to and the folds would carry monies and all sorts of things. And he takes it and he binds his feet together and he binds his hand together and says, look, this is what befalls the one who owns this belt. And it's this idea. We've, we've seen Old Testament prophets act out scenes. You know, Ezekiel, we've seen. I, Isaiah got naked and walked around saying, this is what the Lord's going to do to Egypt and Cush by the hand of the Assyrians. Ahijah took a new garment, tore it into 12 pieces, and gave Jeroboam, who you talked about a little bit today um, in Sunday school, Jeroboam received the 10 tribes, the 10 pieces of this new garment from Ahijah in 1 Kings. We've seen Old Testament prophets act these things out. Agabus does the same. And also we see something interesting. It says, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament, Testament formula of a prophetic word. And so it gives this prophecy a binding quality. These are God's words, and they are so. Thus says the Holy Spirit. It's important to note also in his message, though, that Agabus doesn't say, therefore, do not go to Jerusalem. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. But he doesn't say, don't go. But on hearing the prophecy, what does the community do? They all hear it, and Luke and the rest of the missionaries that are traveling with Paul, as they hear it, they begin urging him not to go. Verse 12, it says, when we heard this, we and the other people, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. But then we see Paul's rebuke. He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? 
for I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Paul has a resolute love. He has a resolute journey. He is unbound and determined to go where he's been called. We're reminded of what he said to the the Ephesian elders in in chapter 20, verse 24. He said, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, that I only may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Paul cannot be, be dissuaded. He couldn't be dissuaded. His heart was set on his God and the mission he had received. But we see in this Paul, Paul is a person of deep, deep love and, and deep emotion. He is, he's human, and those with him, they, they too are in agony. They love him. And like those entire, they desire his well-being. And this desire is a true, real experience of human love. It's the bond of fellowship of believers. We don't want each other to suffer. And see what emotion is there. He's like, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? The word in Greek that we translate breaking is a word that means to pound over and over, crushing into pieces. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? It is is breaking his heart in pieces, their love for him, but it creates this unwelcome tension. It creates this unwelcome tension for the apostle. It's tearing and pounding and crushing his soul. This idea the, the road ahead is hard. I know it's hard. I've heard that it's hard. This is a hard road before him, but it's now even harder because of your tears for me. He's pained. He's deeply moved. But we see in this his love for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has repeatedly strengthened him by letting it be known what's to happen. He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready. Hear that resolve there. Nothing's going to bind that up. Amen. Nothing's going to bind that up. For I am ready. Not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Even though he was destined to be bound in the days ahead. We see in his rebuke a love for Jesus that is so resolute, a love that is unbound. And throughout the New Testament, we've seen this resolve in Paul. To the church at Philippi, he wrote this. Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count... Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul was a transformed person whose experience of life itself and its circumstances have been brought into the submission of God's perspective. And upon hearing the apostle's rebuke, 
The team relented. They relented. Verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul knew what he faced. He was resolved, and upon hearing the resolve of their their leader, they, they all together returned to the same perspective that God has. Surrendering to the will of the Lord. Acts 15 and uh, 21, 15 and 16, we see Paul and his companions make their way to Jerusalem and, and the church of Caesarea sent with them um, disciples to help them. So the team grew. They're all journeying together. It's an amazing picture of partnership among churches. Let me close by drawing out some implications for us. We can apply them to ourselves individually and then our faith family corporately. First, the, the passage today has highlighted the characteristic of cooperation in Christian fellowship. The, the travel log that Luke has provided for us, what he walked us through in these verses, demonstrates how the churches together were supporting one another. The church in Jerusalem had first sent, it's interesting, the, the church in Jerusalem had first sent Barnabas to Antioch, back in chapter 11. Barnabas then went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch from Tarsus. Right? And then all these churches were planted and strengthened, sending Paul and Barnabas out to plant these churches. Then, then years later, upon hearing the need in Jerusalem, the church that originally sent them out, hearing the need, they return with support and people to help those in need. It's an amazing picture. This is why being a part of the Pillar Network is such a blessing for Redeemer that we can support churches around the states and we can be connected in real, tangible relationships to other churches who, who think the same way we do theologically and think the same way we do ecclesiologically. It's an amazing gift to us. This is why training pastors and supporting TLI is so important. When there's a theological family in the land, we want people to hear the gospel. We want pastors to be trained, amen? This is why partnering with churches in Ireland where the gospel is, is almost, it's almost a pre-Christian culture because of the post-Christianness of it. This is how we get to participate in doing the same thing the early church has been doing ever since the beginning, amen? And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Secondly, secondly, the fellowship of believers, the fellowship of believers as we've seen through this passage is a strong bond. It's displayed in our hospitality. Throughout our text, we see people of faith connecting at deep levels um, and caring for one another. We are called to care for one another. That's how people are going to know we belong to Christ, that he owns us. And our fellowship will always involve whole families. Both in Tyre and Caesarea, we saw how the believers welcomed and brought Paul and his companions into their lives. We always see um, people who are sent, and that sentness also involves for us sending, receiving, and supporting. Third, as, as believers, we understand that even as we know that life itself is hard, the Christian life is, is, is sometimes exceedingly hard. It's full of goodbyes and farewells. It's full of hardships. Our faith is stretched in circumstances often that we are not prepared for, but as believers, there are things that we can know. Faced with difficulty, we can know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus and his transforming power to strengthen us. 
transforming the experience of those circumstances even that we might be his in those circumstances. We can know the reality of hope that, that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, 14. He said, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, un are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can know the reality of that hope. We can know the reality of the world's, um, even with the world's increasing opposition to the Christian faith, we can know that reality by remembering Christ's words to us. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And later, he says this in chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Finally, we can be strengthened in heart knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has a love for, for you, a love for me that can't be stifled, that can't be quenched, and is not bound. He loves you terribly. His life, his life poured out for you, all these things. It's not based on any merit of your own that's in you. It's only based on the merit of his righteous and holy life where he lived sinlessly for us in our place, which was bound this life and imprisoned and taken to the cross where Jesus died, laying down his life for you and me. But we know that the grave couldn't keep him bound. The grave couldn't keep him bound because he is our victor. He is our resurrected Savior, and he is alive now, interceding for us at the right hand of God. There is nothing that can bind his love for you, and that cross and that empty tomb is the expression of that. Our Lord, in love to those who believe in his atoning work so that he could crush in pieces, that he can crush in pieces the sin and death that kept us in bondage so that we might be free because of the love with which he had for us. This is the Savior whom Paul followed. This is the Savior who invites you to know him who invites you to turn to him repeatedly and daily. This is a Savior who loves you and is sending you out, whether it be at home or abroad, so that you might exalt him and make much of the name of Jesus. Because that is our testimony. That is our mission. That is the mission that you and I are on, brothers and sisters, to make much of the name of Christ Jesus so that people might hear the gospel and be saved so that we all together one day when we behold him face to face might worship and glad joy for all time. Amen? Let's pray together.